So on the night of January 6th, after people had literally defecated in the Capitol, Congressman Andy Kim, who is my hometown congressman and the child of immigrants, he was just walking around picking up trash because he was upset that the symbol of American democracy had been defiled. When I think about what happened at the Capitol beyond the bigger story of Trump and the mob, I think about Congressman Andy Kim, who is actually my hometown congressman. And that evening, after people had... Sorry, I don't don't know why I'm getting emotional. It's okay. For Sandeep Prasanna and our other investigators, the pain of witnessing the Capitol besieged and defiled fuels a fire within. They enter the Capitol ready to investigate the first non-peaceful transfer of power in our nation's history. America is both an example for the world, but it's also part of the world. And I think often when people think of American exceptionalism, it puts blinders on the fact that America is subject to the same global forces that other countries are susceptible to. Sandeep and his colleagues begin their work amidst the white supremacist tide unleashed by former President Trump and supported by many far-right conservatives. And so when we see a global lurch to the right or a lurch towards authoritarianism in some of the biggest, most important countries in the world, the U.S. is part of that. And January 6th is one example of that. I think the events and the lead-up to it are shocking. But I think they weren't entirely not predictable. Predictable or not, these investigators are about to delve into every aspect of the 187 minutes that shook the nation to its core. This is an American story. Note, there is some offensive language in this episode. Joining the January 6th committee is a homecoming of sorts for Sandeep and Robin Piguero. In the past, they both worked on Capitol Hill. When Robin arrives on his first day back on the Hill, he's led to the O'Neill Building on Capitol grounds. Sunlight floods through its giant windows. Tucked away, this building escaped damage during the insurrection. Somewhat of a veteran. I had never really known about O'Neill. It was one of those buildings that is sort of off to the side, purposefully nondescript. If it was in the heart of the campus, I think it would have been mayhem. Robin heads towards the office and the investigation that will consume his life. He's confronted by the realities of his new position. As we were walking over, within 30 minutes to an hour of starting, of joining officially, he says, you know, how do you get to work? I I said, I'm going to walk. I got an apartment that was 15 minutes door-to-door away. He says, well, you you, you might want to consider taking a different route each time in case people follow you, in case, you know, someone wants to do you harm. 
While Robin had years of Hill experience, it's new to Brian Bonner. Remember, his life wound through Harlem, then Virginia, then Air Force JAG Corps, Homeland Security, and now, for the first time, to the Capitol with its protocols and rules. I came into the office and I said, good morning, and was like, dead silent. It's like a morgue. And what I came to realize was the environment on Capitol Hill is when you're an unknown, you're treated like you're dangerous. If they don't know you, they're not going to talk to you. Robin and Brian are assigned to the blue team, which Samia Dayananda leads, and are responsible for investigating law enforcement preparedness on January 6th. The days are grueling. The pressure to uncover how January 6th occurred and why mounts. Six would come, and that's usually the time that the Hill day ends, 6 p.m., and people were still working, you know, late into the night in that sort of atmosphere. They don't have much time. They must complete their investigation before the legislative clock runs out. The 2022 midterms loom. Robin again. We knew conventional wisdom right was going to be that Democrats would not hold on to the House and the subsequent election, which meant that we were not going to exist after that. Candace Phoenix, our investigator who left the DOJ Civil Rights Division to work for the Democratic Congressman Jamie Raskin, leads the Purple Team. This team is tasked with looking into the role of white supremacist organizations, militias, and domestic extremists in the lead-up to January 6th. She remembers the early days of the committee well. At the beginning, there was so much that had to be done just to stand up the committee. It didn't Mm -hmm. exist. Nothing about that committee was normal. And then in other ways, all of it was just like everything else that you've ever done dialed up to 11. Though many of the investigators are just getting their footing on the political quicksand of Capitol Hill, expectations are high and they're asked for quick results. Both the press and the public and the members wanted to move fast. (laughs) And so there was a lot of just trying to figure out what we could do to demonstrate some movement and some motion while we basically bought ourselves time. The shape the investigation and subsequent report will take is still up in the air. But the information they gather begins to put together the puzzle pieces about why American democracy is in such peril. The seeds of January 6th were planted long before that day. They were sown within our nation's history. The soil was tilled by former President Trump, Temadayo Aganga-Williams, who stood before the gleaming Capitol with tears in his eyes, remembers how Trump antagonized President Barack Obama. I think if you look back from 2013 on and you look at the birtherism claims, you look at the entire trajectory of how, I think, the former president rose to his latest iteration of national prominence, All of that was consistent with everything that happened at the election into January 6th. Temadayo is named the investigative lead of the Green Team. Their task was straightforward, but certainly not simple. So the Green Team was, as the name would suggest, focused on money. Mm -hmm. Our mandate was, in the most simplest of ways, follow the money. Following the money trail leads to revelations about how Trump's team operated after the election. We obtained evidence that showed that they did not have approval to write that they won, but they got approved from the higher-ups to start saying that Democrats are trying to steal the election, even though they had no evidence of that. 
The messages from the Trump campaign roll out to his followers multiple times a day. It was one of the ways a campaign could pump out a message constantly through text messages, through email messages, to all the followers, to millions and millions of Americans. Temadayo said that the Trump campaign and the Republican National Committee were put on notice. And the email provider started blocking them because there was violent speech in them. And they were saying it violates our terms and service agreement because we don't allow this kind of speech. We're talking about this is our last stand. They're hearing Trump saying fight. They're getting an email from his campaign saying today's historic fight. And I think all of that, it built up to why people think that it's time to take action. The tenor of the emails and texts are alarming, and members of the Trump campaign flagged each other about the content. The aggressiveness of the fundraising emails was elevated up the chain at the Trump campaign. They were aware that these emails were violent. They were aware that they were being rejected by other services, but no one stopped or did anything. Why not? Because it was making them a whole lot of money. They kept churning out more. Former President Trump's campaign saw no reason to stop. Between Election Day and January 6th, you have over $250 million that people donate and give. Not only did the numbers surprise me, they surprised folks at the Trump campaign. Mm -hmm. I mean, three out of four best fundraising days came after the election. Mm -hmm. So they were shocked at this cash cow. The former president is all too willing to spread what the January 6th committee calls the big lie, the false notion that the 2020 presidential election was stolen from President Trump. Marcus Childress, just like Brian Bonner, is new to Capitol Hill. Both men were military prosecutors or JAGs from different generations. Marcus even calls his colleague Uncle Brian. Marcus also works with Sandeep to prepare several depositions of key players. First up, one of the men responsible for spreading the big lie. Ali Alexander's deposition really focused on the Stop the Steal movement, how it was organized, why it was organized, the rallies, his public statements about the election, um, about the Capitol, about January 6th. Ali Alexander was a mastermind behind many of the Stop the Steal rallies leading up to January 6th. Here's Alexander speaking to some of his followers. I want them to know that 1776 is always an option. These degenerates in the deep state are going to give us what we want or we are going to shut this country down. His contacts extend into the heart of the GOP, with Republicans Paul Gosar and Andy Biggs, both from Arizona. In winter 2021, on the morning of his deposition, Alexander makes his way to Capitol Hill. He's flanked by his lawyers while dressed in a slim-fitting gray suit with his black spectacles perched on his face and hair combed like a 1960s soul singer. All I knew of Ali Alexander was studying literally every day his tweets, his videos, his public statements of these rallies. And I thought of him as just like this really big personality. And I'm not going to lie, I was shocked at his like physical stature. He was a pretty small, slim man. Mm-hmm. One thing I will say about Ali Alexander, I think he's a grifter. Alexander sits across from Marcus, Sandeep, and some of their fellow investigators. 
Sandeep was my road dog. For mm-hmm. every depot, almost everyone, Sandeep was my right hand in it. I think it really leveraged our experiences in an amazing way. Sandeep being an oversight policy person who has studied extremism, its roots, how mm-hmm. it's manifests, how it's continuing to persist in our country, and me being a prosecutor who has to like tie elements together in a closing argument. The two investigators have done their research, but Alexander comes out swinging. He comes out Uh, real hot. I think he said politics is a contact sport, so I know I'm going to get bruised. Came out with the real cliches. And I'm not a cliche guy. Mm -hmm. Sandeep's not a cliche guy. I'm not sure he was truly prepared to have answers for very factual claims. And then when he tried to weasel out of answering certain questions, I don't think he was prepared for us to put a document in front of him and make him explain it. Every denial by Ali Alexander is met with documented facts pointing to his involvement in the attempt to overturn the 2020 presidential election. Oh, you don't recall. Let me let me help you refresh your recollection. Mm -hmm. Here's this text message from November 30th of Mm -hmm. 2021 where you said X, Y and Z. Help me understand what you were trying to say or what you were thinking in that day. I said it in that exact tone. We're going to keep rolling with this and you're going to answer every question we have. Nearly eight hours later. I think we wore him down, if if I'm being honest. Marcus refers to this deposition as one of his proudest moments as a lawyer. Still, the pressure takes a toll. I have a really great talent of hiding feelings, which I think is good in these types of situations. That's how I cope. With my feelings, I actually become even less expressive, even more stoic than I normally am in my regular life. Marcus tried to mentally shield himself from the harsh realities of the investigation. In football, when you're in pain, you're told to bite down on your mouthpiece. Just bite down your mouthpiece and keep going. Never let them see you sweat. Never let them see you in pain. And I felt that way with the witnesses I was dealing with. I refused to let them see that I was affected by this investigation or this evidence in any kind of way. But the work follows him home to his wife and four-month-old son. This was one of those jobs where we were working, like, nonstop around the Mm -hmm. clock. And so I would try to take the night shifts from my wife when I would get home from work. And I would look at surveillance footage. I would wear headphones and hold Mm -hmm. my son. If you were to ask my wife, she would say that I was a zombie. Marcus isn't the only one struggling emotionally. Sandeep struggles, too. I wouldn't say that I necessarily handled um, my emotional state in in the best way. A four-hour interview or deposition with a witness who was involved in the violence of the day could knock me out way more than kind of doing 20 hours of document review. I started therapy a couple of months into working on the committee, and that was really helpful to kind of be able to contextualize and understand my my feelings and thought processes. Candace again. There's no way in a deposition to sit across from folks who are dropping the N-word left and right as if it's nothing and hold your face as if you're not reacting to that and not leave that with some degree of trauma. The work is traumatizing, but there's no time to rest. Next up for Sandeep and Marcus, Enrique Tarrio, leader of the Proud Boys, a far-right extremist organization elevated into the public eye by President Donald Trump during a 2020 presidential debate hosted by then-Fox News anchor Chris Wallace. 
Give me a name. Give me a white name. White supremacists and right like supremacists. and right Stand back and stand by. On the social media platform Parlor, Tario replied, standing by, sir. During a deposition, a member of the Proud Boys reported that its ranks rapidly rose following Trump's call to stand by. Unlike Ali Alexander, Tario's deposition takes place over a video call. He's projected into the room, staffed by Sandeep, Marcus, and Candace. Marcus and I worked really closely together, including on the deposition of Enrique Tario. And he's a fascinating figure. And the Proud Boys are actually surprisingly racially diverse, even though they uh, advance ideas related to white nationalism. It may seem counterintuitive, but Enrique Tario is part of a new wave of extremists who, while not white, support white supremacy. He is emotionally intelligent in a way that he can change his message for whoever he's talking to. Mm -hmm. So when I had studied him, (laughs) I had a certain perception of him that did not come to fruition during the depot. During the deposition, Tario scratches absentmindedly at his neck with a look of bemusement on his face. During the depot, it felt like he was honestly trying to make me his friend, trying Mm. to disarm me. He tried to give off as if being cooperative towards us, although he was clearly leaving out facts that we were aware of. I thought he was extremely talented at evading questions and knowing that we were not having a criminal investigation. There was only but so much we could do to really challenge him on his answers. The deposition leads Marcus to question the depth of Tario's beliefs. Maybe he's just an opportunist when it comes to the messages that he was peddling. I don't think Enrique Tario knows who he is. I personally think he just wanted fame. January 6th happened because of efforts from men like Ali Alexander and Enrique Tario, but they didn't act alone. On the morning of January 6th, the committee findings indicate President Trump used language that enabled the insurrection. Here's Robin reading from a part of the January 6th committee report, which he wrote. From a tent backstage at the Ellipse... President Trump looked out at the crowd of approximately 53,000 supporters and became enraged. According to testimony received by the committee, earlier that morning at the White House, the president was told that the onlookers were unwilling to pass through the magnetometers because they were armed. Deputy Chief of Staff Tony Ornato reportedly told President Trump, they have weapons that they don't want confiscated by the Secret Service. President Trump shouted to his advance team, I don't fucking care that they have weapons. They're not here to hurt me. Take the fucking mags away. Let my people in. They can march to the Capitol from here. Take the fucking mags away. Sandeep has been watching the TikTok of domestic violent extremism rising in America. He noticed warning signs for months leading up to the insurrection at the Capitol. Frequently, prior to January 6th, there were armed demonstrations at state capitals across the country. Here's one example that took place in Salem, Oregon State Capitol, in mid-December 2020. Looking at those videos, anyone would think that that was just taken straight from January 6th. And then we found a video 
from January 6th where a woman is standing in front of one of the entrances to the U.S. Capitol. And you can hear her on the video saying, we did this in Boise. We broke the same glass in Boise. Sandeep was sometimes frustrated by the lack of coordinated federal response. I'd spent two years prior to that trying to sound the alarm on the growing threat of violent right-wing extremism. And, yeah, it's... uh, I'll leave it at that. The January 6th committee always planned televised hearings. But shortly before the first hearing, Marcus and Sandeep learn the hearings will be televised during primetime. A first. There was a, a ton of pressure, a lot of expectations, and some degree of uncertainty about how it would all shake out. Two weeks before the first hearing, they're still conducting their investigation and scripting their presentation. As we moved into the hearings and it was a constant churn of scripting Mm -hmm. and making sure that the evidence we're putting out Mm -hmm. was told in a way that was simple, that was clean, and that was compelling. And that takes a lot of work. You can't just throw a bunch of facts at the wall and hope it comes together. Those weeks where we were working on the hearings were nonstop. The committee will present on the role of law enforcement on January 6th and its inability to contain the rioters. Brian questions law enforcement's lack of preparedness. The narrative was, with respect to law enforcement, why didn't they have the intelligence? Like, why didn't they know this was going to happen? How come they were not provided this information? But when you dig, you realize... But they did have the information, Mm -hmm. right? He has a theory shared by some of his fellow black and brown investigators about why Capitol Police underestimated the threat of the crowd. With respect to the Capitol Police specifically, it was an underestimation of the threat Mm -hmm. and an overestimation of their ability to respond to it, colored by the demographics of the crowd. When you talk to them about the demographics, they'll say, well, we handle protests all the time, Mm -hmm. which is true. I would say, but didn't this occur to you? And they say, well, no, Brian, we've handled rioters before. We've handled people protesting before, and we've got this. Except they didn't. At all. Arguably, if the complexion of the crowd had been more black and brown people, I think that they might have responded differently. I think that speaks to racism through perception, making assumptions about what people are going to do based on how they look. As the leader of the Purple Team, Candace hopes to tell the story of how white supremacy was the driving force behind January 6th, instead of a report focusing primarily on the actions of former President Trump. Nancy Pelosi, when she impaneled the committee, said she wanted to make sure that something like January 6th never happened again. And our question on the purple team was, what do we mean when we say that? Are we talking about we don't want a broad scale systemic disenfranchisement of a large portion of this country that led us to January 6th in the first place? The further back you get from January 6th to define that problem, the larger the solution needs to be. And the closer you stay to January 6th, the smaller the solution is. Do they elevate the larger solution or not? 
With Chairman Benny Thompson and Vice Chair Liz Cheney at the helm, the congressional members debate the merits of the two possible directions. When the members got together in that report meeting, it was them in the front and then like 40 or 20, 30, whatever of us investigators just behind watching them debate. And we would present, we'd get up and present our sort of version. Candace, head of the Purple team, presents a different frame for the January 6th report. You saw the militias, you saw the Christian nationalists, you saw the MAGA folks, the QAnon folks. All of those are different denominations of white supremacy. QAnon has very anti-Semitic tropes and memes and language that people may or may not consciously understand. The investigators and congressional members all come to the table with different experiences. They have very different views about the military, about the police, about race. There's a lot of discussion. They're not all going to agree on how you present race to the American people and what factor it played in January 6th. Eventually, the chair and vice chair reach consensus on what the January 6th report should contain. It was, we need to keep the eye on the ball, which is the former president seeking to end American democracy. That's what this has got to be about. And soon, in prime time no less, America will get to watch so much of the investigators' work artfully crafted by former ABC News producers. People were at the door trying to get in. Mm -hmm. There were so few spots. Members of Congress were sitting in the audience. So much press, so much excitement. Uh, It was a circus. The hearings begin. I'm Benny Thompson, chairman of the January 6th 2021 committee. I'm from a part of the country where people justify the actions of slavery, the Ku Klux Klan, and lynching. I'm reminded of that dark history as I hear voices today try and justify the actions of the insurrectionists on January 6, 2021. The committee presents the information, but will the American people pay attention? 22 million Americans tune into this first hearing, taking Robin and the rest of the committee by surprise. It was that much drama, that much intrigue, and people were really captivated. I think that was surprising for many of us, obviously a pleasant surprise. Marcus, who said he spent many months walking through life as a zombie, shares a moment with his wife who supported him through those long days and nights. I sat on the dais next to Miss Cheney and Mr. Kinzinger. My wife was there. My wife and I were just like locking eyes the entire hearing because I think she knew how giddy I was on the inside about the work that I had done and where I was sitting in this moment. And I view the Capitol as just like one of the most symbolic, important institutions in the entire world. And I think that's why January 6th made me so motivated to want to investigate it because I hold it and the promise of America so deeply. But that promise has been broken over and over, especially to those who are black and brown. Our next episode delves deep into race and how it plays into almost everything about January 6th, including our investigators' perspective. Coming up on episode three... I can only speak as a black person, but I think a lot of us walk into rooms and we're always doing like a math calculation. You're wondering how they think of you. You're wondering whether or not... They're pro-black or anti-black. And we've been all doing this since we were children. 
Thanks for listening to January 6th, An American Story, a special series from Our Body Politic. I'm host and executive producer, Farai Chidea. For this series, Joanne Levine is our executive producer. Morgan Givens is our senior producer. The series was written by Joanne Levine, Morgan Givens, and Farai Chidea. Mary Mathis and Nicole Bodie are our fact checkers. The series was sound designed by Rococo Punch. Jordan Green is our researcher. Our Body Politic is produced by Diaspora Farms and Rococo Punch. Nina Spensley and Shanta Covington are also executive producers. Emily J. Daly is our senior producer. Our technical director is Mike Garth. Special thanks to the folks at Clean Cuts, including Carter Martin, Emma Shannon, Harry Evans, Archie Moore, Mike Gaylor, Adam Runer, Molly Mountain, and Aliza Joffrey. This series is produced with the support of Ruth Ann Harnish. This program is produced with support from the Serdna Foundation, Ford Foundation, Katie McGrath and J.J. Abrams Family Foundation, Craig Newmark Philanthropies, Meadow Fund, Democracy Fund, Heising Simons Foundation, Schusterman Family Philanthropies, Open Society Foundations, the Henry L. Luce Foundation, Compton Foundation, Harnish Foundation, Pop Culture Collaborative, the Be Me Community, and from generous contributions from listeners like you.